Matthias Desmet is a lecturer of, of psychoanalytic psychotherapy. I can barely read these words that he's, <laughs> that he's a specialist in, in the Department of Psychoanalysis and Clinical Consulting at Ghent University in Belgium. He's the author of over a hundred peer-reviewed academic papers, including this book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, and he's widely recognized as the world's leading expert on the theory of mass formation as it applies to the COVID-19 pandemic. Please welcome to the show, Matthias Desmet. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you, Jamie. Thank you for inviting me. It's a honor to be here. It's. Uh, I just want to say that I've been looking for an explanation of what happened during COVID because all my friends uh, who used to be cynical skeptics of the government, of big pharma, of propaganda, of corporate media, all of a sudden turned their brains off. And worse than that, they started to repeat the propaganda. Worse than that, they started to shame people who were skeptical of the propaganda around COVID, around the numbers around COVID, around everything they were saying around COVID. Not only that, did they shame those people, but then they tried with a virulence and an enthusiasm that I, so these are people who are former skeptics, people who still don't think we landed on the moon and still think Elvis is alive, but somehow they had no questions over the COVID narrative. And if you did question it, you were outcast and a bad person and a eugenicist. And I was called everything in the world. Eugenicist? Yeah, so, yes. So you have a theory. <laughs> On how this happens. And in fact, you were studying this for a long time and the conditions were just right for this to happen. So please, can you take all the time you want, explain your theory and explain how former comedians who were supposed to be the chief skeptics in the world turned into the mouthpieces of propaganda. And not only that, but the, 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 the fascist authoritarians that they turned into. And this isn't new. This happened in Nazi Germany. This happens a lot of times. You know all about it, so please take it away. Uh, well, um, yes, I, I, I believe what, what happened um, was a large-scale phenomenon of mass formation in our society. Mass formation is a, is a specific kind of group formation, and you actually mentioned all the major characteristics. Uh, so the, one of the most important um, uh, effects mass formation has at the level of individual psychological functioning is that it makes people incapable of taking a critical distance of what they believe in first. And then second, that it makes people radically willing to sacrifice everything that used to be important for them. And then thirdly, maybe most important is that it makes people, someone who is in the grip of this phenomenon of mass formation starts to become radically intolerant for dissonant voices. And, um, uh, that's so that's that's just the strange effects that the phenomenon of mass formation has at the level of individual psychological functioning. And this can go quite far. Uh, in the end, for instance, when talking about this intolerance for dissonant voices, uh, this can go quite far. In the end, um, parents typically start to report their children to the state if they do not follow the state narrative well enough. That's, 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 this intolerant for dissonant voices goes, goes very far. Um, and, um, well, indeed, in the beginning of the corona crisis, uh, I started to study the statistics a little bit and I immediately noticed that, well, in my opinion, uh, in a strange way, while these statistics were really absurd in many respects, uh, almost everyone 
just went along with the narrative. And um, I started to think about what happened. And it took me a few months because I really could pinpoint it, in my opinion, and 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 um, and understand that what was happening was this phenomenon of mass formation. Uh, and this is indeed, as you said, this 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 mass formation typically emerges in a society when very specific conditions are met. And so one of the most important conditions is that many people have to feel lonely and isolated. They have to feel uh, disconnected from um, uh, their fellow human beings and disconnected from nature around them. So it's this state of isolation, of loneliness, uh, sometimes also called uh, the atomization of the human being, atomization of the human being, which is which is the 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 root cause of uh, of the phenomenon of mass formation and once people feel socially isolated once they feel lonely and this was really the case uh, just before the corona crisis just before the corona crisis um worldwide i think about i mentioned the the exact figure in my book um about 40% of the people worldwide uh, reported to feel lonely to reported that they didn't have one meaningful a relationship and that they only connected to people through the internet. So like in, in the States, the US Surgeon General mentioned that there was a loneliness epidemic and in the UK, Theresa May appointed a minister of loneliness uh, because she, she, <laughs> because she recognized uh, how, how many people felt, felt lonely and isolated. Now, and, you, um, now you say that this loneliness this has been coming on for hundreds of years, right? And that, and that it's the mechanization of our society. And that, you know, I think it even goes back to when Nietzsche said God is dead, right? <laughs> so we don't have, we only have science in a sense. And so people have, now we have what you could refer to as free floating anxiety. <clears throat> and that set the table for, for mass formation, right? Correct. And this has been coming on. Yes, that's exactly. So, so uh, uh, you see that there is a very strong correlation between the number of people feeling lonely in a country and uh, the level of mechanization, industrialization, and use of technology in a in a in a in a country. So then that 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 explains why that explains exactly why uh, throughout uh, the uh, last few centuries, more and more people started to feel lonely, and at the same pace, uh, the phenomenon of mass formation got stronger and stronger and stronger. Uh, and it became so strong that in the beginning of uh, the 20th century, for the first time, the masses, the mass formations, could seize control of the state apparatus. And the first totalitarian states emerged in the Soviet Union and, and in Nazi Germany. So uh, a totalitarian state uh, is a state that is based on the phenomenon of mass formation. It's a state system which emerges... Uh, after a mass formation, first, there is a small group of uh, uh, about 20 to 30 percent of the people who start to become in the grip, fanatically in the grip of a certain narrative, a certain ideology, and that start to form a mass. And then, led by certain leaders, they can seize control of the state apparatus. And in this way, a totalitarian state emerges, which is a kind of state which does not only control public space and political space, as a classical dictatorship does, but which also controls private space because it has, it has a huge secret police, namely this part of the population that is in the grip of the mass formation and that so fanatically believes in the state narrative that they are willing to snitch on everyone, to report everyone to the state who doesn't follow the, the narrative close enough. So you see indeed that the root cause of the mass formation is the loneliness, which in its is somehow correlated to the level of mechanization of the world and the use of technology. 
And that's exactly the reason why more, more and more people started to feel lonely. And then in a second step, once people feel lonely, they really start to struggle with a lack of meaning making in life. And um, once they feel lonely and struggle with a lack of meaning making, and this was also the case just before the Corona crisis, for instance, worldwide, over 40% of the people worldwide uh, reported that they considered their job to be a so-called bullshit job, a job which has no meaning at all. So that's huge. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. That that is that is huge. So, yes. but uh, um, and then can, I, can I just add something? Jim? Yes, go ahead. Yes, because and then that's very important. Once uh, people uh, feel disconnected from each other, struggle with a lack of meaning making, they really start to experience specific effects. In in particular, they start to feel confronted with so-called free-floating anxiety, frustration, and aggression. That means a kind of anxiety, frustration, and aggression that is not connected to a mental representation, meaning that they are confronted with anxiety, frustration, and aggression, and at the same time don't know what they feel uh, anxious, frustrated, and aggressive for. And that's the state when a population is in that state something very specific might happen. If under these conditions, someone or a narrative is disseminated, a narrative is distributed that indicates an object of anxiety and at the same time provides a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety. For instance, lockdowns to deal with the virus mm-hmm. or uh, the Me- witch hunts to deal, to deal with the witches or uh, the crusades to deal with the Muslims uh, in, in Jerusalem. If under these conditions, so this narrative is distributed, indicating an object of anxiety and a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety, something very specific might happen. All this free-floating anxiety might at once connect to the object of anxiety, and there might be a huge willingness in the population to participate in a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety, even if this strategy is utterly absurd. And the reason is that in this way, people start to feel in control of their anxiety. They can connect it to something and they have a strategy to deal with it. And at the same time, they can direct all their frustration and aggression on the object of anxiety. So that's the reason why under certain conditions, many people follow this absurd strategy to deal with something their, their anxiety is connected to. And then in a second step, something even more important happens. And that's crucial because so many people at the same time participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. They have the feeling that they fight a collective heroic battle with the object of anxiety. In other words, they feel connected again. They feel not lonely anymore. And, and that's, that's why you have this strange feeling of connectedness and solidarity, which in the end is always fake is it's fake because a mass is a group that is formed not because people connect to each other no it's a group that is formed because people connect all separately to a collective ideal meaning that in the end they feel a lot of solidarity not with each other but with the collective and the longer the mass formation exists the less solidarity they feel for each other, the more solidarity they feel for the collective, 
Meaning that in the end, they report each and every one, they snitch on each and every one of whom they think that he doesn't feel the, the narrative well enough, just uh, like that, even when it when it's concerns their own children or their own parents, it doesn't matter. Now, uh, you know, Kurt grew up in, who's my co-host, and he grew up in kind of a cult-like atmosphere around religion. And it's it seems to re- resemble religion, right? The COVID narrative. And now here's my question for you. The people who, get, this is what I don't get. I understand mass formation. I understand how most people go along. But the people who traditionally didn't go along. Their job. The people, so, so the artists, right? So there are no bigger authoritarian Nazis around COVID than the arts, right? People on Broadway, people in Hollywood. They're no, they're the worst. And those are the people who are supposed to be pushing back. For instance, I have, a, I had a close knit group of friends who, I don't know if you know what happened in America, but it's called Russia Gate. It's when the Democratic Party and the intelligence community in America concocted its conspiracy theory that somehow Russia and Donald Trump colluded together to overthrow illegally the election of 2016 it was completely made up and i had a group and there's a lot but most of the people in america believed it i had a small group of people who debunked it saw through it and we we were scorned by our friends over debunking it they said what are you a trumper why do you like donald trump we're like we don't like donald trump we just don't like the intelligence community lying and we're showing you the lies and this is all a big distraction and so even those the reason i tell you this is because even those people who could see through that big mass delusion of Russiagate and we became closer because of it, they turned on me. Even those people stopped their critical thinking skills when it came to COVID. Like they kept them when it came to Trump and it came to Russiagate and it came to everything. But when it came to COVID, they completely detached. They turned on me in the most vicious way possible, uh, publicly. And all I was doing was being consistent, a consistent skeptic of the official establishment narrative, which is what I thought comedians were always supposed to be. And it turns out I was right. I was right at every turn. I got vaccine injured. And at when I looked into the COVID narrative, they were lying about vaccine. They were lying about the transmission and contraction. They were lying, which was the basis for mandates. So that just took, that's why they had to lie about them. And so they were lying about that. They were lying about natural immunity. They were lying about herd immunity. They were lying about masks. They were lying about efficacy. They were lying about, they didn't want to release the trial data for 75 years. And still my comedian friends didn't have one question about the COVID narrative. So how does that happen that the artists, the people who are supposed to be the people who push back or people like Noam Chomsky, who became a complete monster during COVID, those are the people who I was so surprised. It's like, oh, that's how Hitler got it done because the people who were supposed to push back didn't. So I'll, you can take it wherever you want. Uh, I know it's, it's a very well known phenomenon that you're describing there. Uh, Joost Mirlo, the author of uh, Rape of the Mind, uh, um, coined the term mental surrender. He said, when a mass formation emerges in a society, many people who feel ideologically uh, opposed normally to the to the narrative that leads to the mass formation, will suddenly switch their minds, change their position, and go along with the narrative. That's so he he, he calls this phenomenon uh, mental surrender, a very typical phenomenon that happens time and time again when a mass formation emerges. And I believe that while we have seen a lot of massification, which are like a, a kind of precursors of mass formation throughout the last five or six decades. 
the corona crisis was the first fully-fledged phenomenon of mass formation since a very long time, and even the very first worldwide phenomenon of mass formation in history. Um, and that's exactly when a mass emerges, when a mass formation happens, uh, the energetic bonds in the masses are so strong that they split all pre-existing group formations in two. So the, the line dividing uh, the people who went along with the narrative, with the corona narrative, and the people who didn't, really runs straight through every pre-existing group, like uh, companies, friends, even families, were split into uh, by the by the mass formation. And that's typical for a fully-fledged mass formation, for a real mass formation. It is so strong. Uh, the new uh, bonds between um, uh, the new group formation is so strong that it splits all pre-existing groups into even political parties, companies, families, doesn't matter. It's all split into. So that, that's, that's, that's what happens. Uh, and, and that it typically happens under the, under the conditions that I, that I, that I just described. Uh, there must be a sufficient number of people, percentage of the population that feels isolated, suffers with, uh, suffers from lack of meaning making. Uh, is confronted with a lot of anxiety, frustration, and aggression, and then this new group formation might emerge. And ex- I think that's exactly what happened. Um, and then there is always this small group of people who doesn't go along uh, with the masses. Uh, this group of people is typically very, very heterogeneous. It comes from all different backgrounds, from all different ideological orientations, doesn't matter. Uh, and this small group of people uh, really... Um, is just baffled by what happens, and it typically tries to wake up the masses. Yes, but it's very, yeah. That was it's very you, typically. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, no, it, it very typically fails to do so. That is something that was already described in the 19th century by Gustave Le Bon, who wrote this wonderful book, The Psychology of the Crowd, and uh, he said like. When a mass emerges, there is always this group of people who uh, uh, is not sensitive for it, is not uh, in the grip of the mass formation. And they typically try to wake up the people in the mass formation, typically try to show them how absurd the narrative is they believe in. And they typically fail to do so, he said. But, and that's extremely important, when this small group of, pe- of people continues to speak out, continues to speak in a quiet way, they might not be able to wake up the masses, but they will prevent that the mass formation goes to this ultimate stage where the intolerance for dissonant voices is so strong that the masses typically start to uh, discriminate and in the end eliminate each and everyone who doesn't go along with them as if it is their ethical duty to do so. That's typical for the end stage of mass formation. And the end stage of mass, end stage of mass formation, the masses start to become cruel towards the people who do not go along with them. And they do so as if it is their ethical duty to do so. So if there is, if this small group of people chooses to continue to speak out, it will prevent the masses to go to the last and ultimate stage of the mass formation. And that's what's the major mistake that the resistance did in Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. Around 1930, the resistance stopped to speak out in the Soviet Union. Around 1935, they stopped to speak out in Nazi Germany. And within a period of 6 to 12 months, 
the cruelties started in this country. Just because at that moment, the group, the mass formation, which is a kind of a mass hypnosis, becomes complete. Because mass formation, just like mass hypnosis, which is more or less identical, is a phenomenon that is provoked by the voice of a leader. And when the, when the voice of the leader is the only voice that can be heard, it's then that the mass formation goes to the last and ultimate stage. So continuing to speak, continuing to speak out is just crucial. And also something else as well. The group who doesn't go along with the major mass formation might fall prey to a minor mass formation. And that's also something we should absolutely avoid, and which sometimes happened, I think. So you talk about it as a hypnosis. That it's a, like so when I see someone in May of 2023 in a comedy club wearing a mask and they're a 35 year old healthy person, uh, that's they're literally hip. There's no difference between someone being hypnotized and what they're going through, right? Well, the similarities are clear. Uh, in a hypnosis, uh, someone's attention, so the person who is hypnotized, his attention is focused on a very small part of reality. That's what the hypnotist does. So he just draws away the attention, disconnects the attention of someone from the environment with a certain procedure, and then focuses all the attention on one small aspect of reality. And once the attention is focused on one small aspect of reality, it is as if the rest of reality doesn't exist anymore. This is an extremely strong phenomenon, which, for instance, can be used uh, to perform uh, surgical operations. Very typically, I wrote a, a substack about that to show how throughout the last two centuries uh, this um, uh, hypnosis uh, was used uh, to uh, uh, during surgical operations just because even when, when, when someone's attention is focused on one small aspect of reality, it is as if the rest of reality doesn't exist anymore, and the person even doesn't feel physical pain anymore. So that shows how extremely... I really quick, I wanted to... I've heard you talk about how, and I experienced this during COVID, so I was the voice speaking out, and people, and it's nice. Now, people, some people are starting to recognize it. Last night I went to dinner. Uh, the guy at a restaurant bought us dinner because he said, keep speaking out. And, it, and I was like, oh, that's so that's good. That made me feel good. But I didn't do it. I just did it because once I knew the truth, I couldn't. What else am I going to do? Go out there and lie? Right. I, that just blew my mind. But it, it, so I tried to my whole point of my show became to tell people the truth about covid, mostly that mandates were wrong because they weren't doing what people thought they did. They thought if everybody got vaccinated, it would stop the pandemic. And if everybody got vaccinated, there wouldn't be any covid outbreaks in our country. And that was never the case. And that's what I kept showing that the countries around the world that had the highest <laughs> vaccine update were having some of the highest outbreaks. And so this is before we knew that they never tested for transmission of the virus. That's before I figured it out just on the data. And so so me showing people data didn't make a difference, right? So talk about that. Talk about how if you try to change people's minds during one of these things and you use data, which is what I was doing, I was trying to use actually science and data, that that will have no effect on them. Can you speak Jimmy, to that? the word of God convicts your heart, not your head. <laughs> okay. So could you speak to that? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, rational arguments usually doesn't don't make a difference. That's very typical. Um, um, 
so that that also that was also described by uh, by Gustave Le Bon uh, in the in the in the nineteenth century already that the rational arguments uh, absolutely um, are not sufficient to wake someone up who is in a mass formation. But of, but of course we have to distinguish between three um, three groups. I think so. Like the group who is really in the grip of the mass formation usually is rather small. It's only about twenty to thirty percent of the population, and but then. There is a 60, 65% of the people who just go along with the masses and who always remain silent. They feel that there is something wrong with the narrative, uh, but they, they just prefer uh, to remain silent uh, because in one way or another, they maybe don't find the courage to speak out or they just uh, take the easy way and do as if they agree with the masses. Um, so, uh, and then there is a small group of people usually rather small, one to five percent, maybe sometimes 10 percent, uh, it depends on the circumstances, who sees that there is something wrong, who feels that there is something wrong with the narrative and who tries to speak out. And and indeed, this, this small group might have an impact through rational argumentation on the middle group. That's possible, but usually not on the on the group who is really in the grip of the mass formation. So I think in any case, it's always important uh, that we continue to speak out, but we should realize that uh, we might fail or we might, that we might not succeed to wake up the people. And at the same time, and that's just crucial, we should understand that, that it is not because we do not succeed in waking up the masses that our voice does not have an effect. Our voice does have an effect. It prevents that people go deeper and deeper in the mass formation. So that's just, once you understand that, you understand that, we always have to continue to speak out without expecting that we will convince someone. Uh, 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 and if we continue to do so, we will have an effect. And at the same time, as I just said, uh, we also should be aware always that we do not fall prey to a different mass formation ourselves. Because also in the group who doesn't go along with the major mass formation, um, also, this group struggles with a lot of anxiety, frustration, and, 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 and aggression in this situation because they just feel threatened in one way or another. And this group might also fall prey to um, uh, certain narratives which attribute all anxiety and all danger to one specific small object, while the situation is usually much more complex than that. Um, I, I, I experienced that. I experienced that with my group that were, uh, you know, proud that we were Russiagate uh, debunkers. And they immediately, exactly what you said, it's like that all that anxiety that they had uh, that around that from being on the outside of the uh, mainstream, uh, they just focused the on that on COVID narrative. And it was fear, fear, fear. I've never seen anything like it. And if you want to disconnect someone's irrational thinking or critical thinking skills, put it that way, uh, is just you just find their fear point and they found it. And, you know, people who I know personal comedians who are diabetics, who complained about the corruption of our government by the big pharma and why their diabetic diabetes medicine costs so much more here than in other countries and how they're all corrupted. And then as soon as COVID came and vaccines, they're like, nope, not not one question. Not only did they not have a question, but they wouldn't allow me to have a question. And no. if I had a question, and, and can, can you talk about the, the, uh, you mentioned it earlier, but talk about the, the, they, they, they were so vicious in the character assassination of me and people like me, but they, but you talk about it, you say they saw it as their moral duty to do so. Can you talk about that psychology? Yeah, of course. Uh, well, well, this mass formation actually, so you have, you, we always have to understand that, 
the, the origin of mass formation is the terrible psychological state a population is in before the mass formation starts. Mm-hmm. This means that they feel lonely, uh, struggle with lack of meaning making, suffer from all this anxiety, frustration and aggression. Then the mass formation emerges and it seems as if all these things disappeared. They feel connected again. They have a new meaning in life like to fight the virus. All their anxiety is connected to an object. They can control it and they can direct all their frustration and aggression at one point. And if they meet someone who doesn't agree and who tries to show them that the narrative that led to the mass formation just is absurd, they feel threatened because they feel that if they allow that person to speak to them, they will wake up and they will be confronted with all this pre-existing uh, misery again. So that's why they feel, and and also, so they, that's why they start to to to, to they try to to make uh, the dissonant voice uh, uh, shut up. That's what they just uh, why they just can't stand the dissonant voice. And at the same time, they consider it their holy duty. Their yes. their their because they feel that this person who doesn't go like, uh, uh, along with the masses, who doesn't go along with the narrative must be an egoist. He lacks solidarity. He lacks this new citizenship, yes. which is so, which is so typical for the masses <laughs> because they feel connected again in the masses and thus they feel a lot of solidarity and they feel a new citizenship. And if there is someone who doesn't go along with them, this must be uh, someone um, uh, who is not really a human being. Uh, and, and, and we should, be destroyed in the end who deserves to be destroyed that's that's how people who knew me for 30 years that's exactly almost the language they use that i should be destroyed that i was doing this out of ego and i didn't care about anybody and had nothing to do again but you know as we talk about it i could show them facts and it didn't matter people who knew me 30 years did this kind of thing and of course i don't mean i don't want to make it about myself but i've been dying to talk to you about this because of it kurt you want to ask a question people are more rabid than after 9 11 when we had that whole solidarity for that bad idea that we did i think there was less persecution heaped on anti and there was a lot right i think it was less than this one i think there was more here and i've COVID. never heard someone say don't do your own research i've never life. heard some people would say in Ever. america comedians on stage would shame people for doing your own research and they would say stuff like trust the science well, you don't trust the science before first you examine it skeptically. Huh. That's what you're supposed to do. What that what they wanted you to do was have blind faith in science, which is what you have in religion. That's not what you have in science. Science works by questioning it. It's science loves to be questioned. It's a lie that can't stand scrutiny. And so that's how they, they mix those two things together. Trust science. Have faith in science. That's not how science works. That's called blind faith. And so I just never... Honest to God, I cannot convey the most, how my, my, nothing blew my mind more than to see almost the entire comedy community or the parts that I saw of it anyway, in unison, shaming people for reading, for trying to get informed about an experimental medical treatment they're being forced to take. And if you want to know what's in that vaccine, or if you want to see the data or want to have any skepticism or questions, you're a bad, how dare you? You're, you are the Nazi. I'm, I, obviously, 
simply being ignorant to the fact that they're the Nazis, like like Chomsky was uh, completely ignorant to the fact that what he was doing, he should have been tipped off to because they did it in World War II. They forced medical treatments on people without informed consent, which is why that's a war crime. And uh, Chomsky famously likes to shame every president since World War II. He says they're all war criminals, and he's right about that. But guess who also pushed for a war crime? Noam Chomsky, because forcing a medical treatment on someone without informed consent goes against the Nuremberg trial. So he became the thing he thought he's been criticizing his whole life. They just had to find the fear button in Chomsky's brain. They pressed it, and he became an authoritarian monster. So I don't know where, where the oh can, let's let's just change the subject very quickly. Eight and here's another thing: like you're not allowed to question the science, right? Around COVID, but I found out through you that 85 percent of academic research pretty unreliable. Correct? Yes, well, uh, in, in certain domains, yes. Um, in 2005, the the so-called replication crisis started in a in a in the academic world, and it, it showed, or at least certain authors, uh, um, among whom, for instance, the the famous um, uh, John Ioannidis uh, of Stanford, uh, he uh, uh, described how in, in certain uh, academic domains, such as the medical sciences, uh, up to eighty-five percent of the peep of the of the public of, of the publications of the of the findings cannot be reproduced. So, which means that from a from a scientific point of view. Uh, they are not objective and they are more or less yeah, useless in most cases. So it's, it's a huge percentage, yes, 85%. Um, John Ioannidis wrote some wonderful papers about it. Uh, uh, one of the papers was titled, uh, Why Most Published Research finding, Findings Are False. And I indeed believe that this is one of the major problems we have in our society. We all trust, we have a blind belief. In, uh, in, in, uh, in science and in the academic world or in something that calls itself science, but that in, 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 um, in most cases actually um, uh, just is not accurate. So indeed, that's, that's a huge problem. I think we should reconsider uh, our blind belief in, uh, in, uh, in what we believe uh, science is today. Um, um, can, 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 yeah, can, for instance, to... for instance, speaking to this very point, can you tell me how long is the coastline of England? Yes, I mentioned that somewhere in 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 the, in the third chapter of my book. Um, indeed, you, nobody can measure the coastline of of Great Britain. <laughs> that's that's something that's something very typical. We we all believe that we can measure almost everything, but it's just not true. Most most phenomena cannot be measured, and that's one of the like like the the uh, the coastline of Great Britain cannot be measured because uh, it's 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 intrinsically two dimensional. Uh, it, it 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 shows a lot of um, um, curves and, and 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 every time you try to reduce it to a straight line, it doesn't work. So um, the the smaller your measurement unit, the longer the coastline of Great Britain will be. That's typical, um, uh, and. Um, that's that's one of the of the major problems I think we deal with. We 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 think that everything can be studied in an objective way, but that's uh, actually not true. I can um, measure it. It's one Great Britain long. <laughs> Done. <laughs> <laughs> I, Just fix the measurement. Easy. There, there it is. So I think can I can I add one thing to that? Yeah. I think in the end, and that's that's the analysis that I that I. Um, that I present in my book, I think that in the end, the problem of mass formation and of totalitarianism 
um, is rooted in our rationalist view on man and the world. That's what I explain in my yeah. book. That's what I explain in my book. So this part I really want to talk about. I mean, this this needs at least two hours, but if let's talk about it. Um, so this is where I think people like uh, well you, you you talk about you know the the you know since the enlightenment and people we've become more mechanized and people have that creates free floating anxiety and so it's because you know the way our culture is now it's everything's cause and effect right if i if i can't measure it then and it doesn't it doesn't exist right and you know carl jung spent a lot of time uh uh, talking about a collective unconscious and that, um, you can't, you know, like, for instance, where artists and poets get their, um, inspiration from, it can't come, a lot of it doesn't come right from direct experience from their life. It comes from somewhere else. And he posited that it comes from a collective unconscious, which we all share, which we all do share. And so, um, people who just think rationally, rational thinking doesn't equal reality necessarily and can you explain what i mean by that i will try to yes on the one hand science is an accumulation of rational knowledge but on the other hand science is also a certain practice which showed us that the essence of life and the essence of reality can never be understood in a rational way and that's what many people forget <laughs> like niels bohr to give only one example, after uh, Niels Bohr uh, was a Nobel Prize winning uh, physicist who studied the behavior of elementary particles, atoms, for instance, um, throughout his entire life. And in the end, he said, when it comes to atoms, language can only be used as poetry because he acknowledged, and he was dead serious when he said that, he acknowledged that in the end, uh, what we call matter, elementary particles, just doesn't behave in a rational way. And it took it took me personally until I was 35 years old before I really understood that. I, I was I, I was taking a deep dive into the, the mathematical basis of complex dynamical systems theory. And I just suddenly understood that all complex dynamical systems behave as an irrational number. For instance, they have no periodicity. And that makes them fundamentally unpredictable. And I suddenly started to understand what all these great scientists meant when they concluded that in the end, life and everything around us cannot be understood in a rational way, that the essence of life can never be reduced to the categories of our rational, logical understanding. Meaning that if we try to reduce life to the categories of our rational and logical understanding, we will always destroy life. And that's so in a certain part of life or a certain part of reality can be understood in a rational way but the essence always escapes rational understanding so and that's also why i think once you start to really be humble enough to admit that your rational brain your rational understanding will never be capable of grasping the essence of life it's at that moment I really believe that when we think in a logical way, we really connect the one idea to the other and we build a wall around us, almost literally a wall which isolates us from the music of life around us, from the eternal music of life around us. And then we can stop our rational understanding. 
when we can stop being convinced that everything around us can be reduced to our own logical understand logical understanding it's at that moment that the building blocks of this wall slide a little bit away from each other and that the eternal music of life can go through the wall and touch the strings of our being almost literally of our body and that's i, I think that is that it is at that moment that you in one way or another participate in something eternal outside of you something that you can never understand but that will always be there and it is at that moment i think that you also start to be less scared of everything related to death and dying in the end of life for instance and that's just because you feel that you're connected to something uh that transcends rational understanding and that uh, has an eternal nature and i think that that's also shows that what the major uh, problem is in our enlightenment society because we try to control to understand control and manipulate everything in a rational way we start to become very scared of death and dying and we just cannot tolerate the idea anymore of mystery that, uh, yeah the mystery in life yes and there's indeed, a, life is a mystery and then and then people come along like uh, who who I'm a fan of Sam Harris and he there's no mystery it's all a plus b equals c and you know you you talked about that quantum physicist and and you know there's a thing called the measurement he talks about how elements and particles don't ra- act rationally well there's this experiment they do it's uh it's i think it's called the measurement problem so they flat fi- they fire electrons through a slit in the paper and they're supposed to go right where you think they would go on a, on the back wall the slit experiment with waves and, yes. and particles so of the particle yeah. right and you observe them and they look different you, so so if you if you when you look at them they right. go right where you think they're supposed to go but if you don't put your consciousness on them they go everywhere they act irrationally right and so that's what i think that's the underlying underlies everything but, in the universe is irrational but the, okay the this so thing I, happened with covid if they were being rational like they said there wouldn't be a statement like trust the science that's right that's irrational you turned it into something mystical that's right they did they you turned, don't read it like i'm in a goddamn church in medieval times that's the irony huh you go trust the science like Go ahead and act all rational and don't believe in anything. I don't care. Do that and but just don't call it science at <laughs> That's me. That's right. That's so so they that they, they did they in the under the guise of being rational, they became mystics and they turned scientists. I got out of a thing because it bothered me having to be, you know, in a thing like that where I have my just do you, you want to stumble your brother from the one true faith with your questions? Yeah. So I get real triggered by it everywhere. I, and what I just discovered was I can never escape it. Everywhere I go. It's, except There's instead of a, a church, it's going to be your employment, and all. Like we're all doing, and then now you see all these companies with their uh, culture mm-hmm. minister or manager, not minister, but mm-hmm. everybody line up. We're all going to wave our hands in the air. We're not raising your pay, but we're all going to form a family That's right. doing these dumb activities, and they're all doing it now. Mm-hmm. Probably spending money to just get the employees to get them in that culty, you know, trust the company because trust. That's what trust the science means. It means the science that was handed to you. That's right. by these two companies. Trust, so trust it. Don't means look trust into trust the it. company. Yes, it does. Someone's too stupid to research. Guess what? They're not going to research. You t- so to say it to people can read. <laughs> but that is such a big idea that you touch on about that the basis of life isn't ra- doesn't act rational, and that you know you you do become less afraid. I know I have become less afraid of death. You know, knowing that I'm connected to something it, eternal. Um. And that, you know, time only exists in this level of consciousness and that we are collect- connected to a collective consciousness that knows no time. 
And um, people who miss that, I think, are missing out on life. Don't, don't you think so? Uh, yes. I, I think to a certain extent I, I agree. Um, um, you know, I just want to say something about the experiment re- you referred to before I, I, I go into that, the, the last question. It's a double-slit experiment That's re- it. you referred to. Yes, and, that, and it shows that when you observe an elementary particle, it behaves like a particle, but when you do not observe it, it behaves like a wave, which is something completely different. So, and uh, indeed, uh, uh, that's one of the of the of the most important experiments in in, in quantum physics. But then exactly, I also think that you know we can know life in two different ways. I, I think we can know it in a rational way, and we can know it by resonating with it, which is something completely different. And uh, I think I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I'm I, I. I really think uh, we should um, uh, walk the path of rationality as far as possible. I really think we should push our rational understanding of the world to the utter limit. But at that moment, we should be honest enough and humble enough to 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 admit that sooner or later we arrive at the border of our rational understanding, and that we have to switch to a different way of knowing the world in. And that we can only do that by resonating with it. And actually, I think that it is, it is this capacity to resonate with, with a certain phenomenon that is also the basis and the origin of science. Uh, René Tom, uh, one of the most famous mathematicians of the 20th century, um, had, this fam- had this wonderful quote. I will just try to repeat it, but it will not be literally. But he said, uh, I think that what distinguishes uh, 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 a scientist uh, from uh, most people is not that he has this extra, extraordinary extraordinary capacity uh, to think in a rational way, but that he has this extraordinary capacity to get into the skins of th- into the skin of things, to resonate with things, and to understand them from within. So that's that's a different way of understanding the world. And I think that the essence of life we can we can resonate with the essence of life. But we can never know it in a rational way. And it is this resonance which connects us to the essence of life. And we can start resonating uh, with, with things outside of us if we are capable of leaving our ego behind and if we are capable to stop to think in a rational way. So that's something very strange. <laughs> yes. I think that that's the, that's the major leap forward that our society has to take. It has to understand that rational thinking thinking can never be the cornerstone of society and can never grasp the essence of life and that we have to uh, move on to a, a different way of connecting uh, to each other and to the world around us. That's uh, some very profound stuff. It was, that's uh, great stuff. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, really exciting. I'm glad I could. Uh, you were willing to come on the show and our audience got to hear you. It's really fantastic. Uh, everybody check out his book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. Uh, thanks to my guest, uh, Matthias Desmet. I really appreciate you coming on. I hope we can talk again soon. Uh, me too, Jimmy. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much. Check out my new stand-up special, COVID Lies Are Funny, at jimmydoor.com. Only $10, become a premium member. We're going to be on tour in Northampton, Massachusetts, Syracuse, Coho's, New York, Hartford, Los Angeles, Bakersfield, California, Baltimore, Maryland, and San Francisco, California. Plus, do we say Chicago? There's lots of stuff. Go to jimmydoor.com for a link for tickets. See you there.